much family time and festivity and probably too much food, but it's a glorious time to reflect upon what God has done for us in Christ. Amen? And I want to uh, reiterate again this handout. Colossians, we'll start this next week and go according to the Lord's timetable. But this will begin uh, this coming Lord's Day expository preaching through the short, just four chapters long, Epistle of Paul to the Colossians. And what this represents, a huge shift from gospel to epistle, which is quite a movement and quite a genre movement. It is a shift from what's called the Johannine writings, John's writings, to the Pauline writings, the epistles of Paul, from the pure indicative, which is what John's gospel is really all about, establishing the indicative of what hath God done through Jesus Christ to that portion of the New Testament that takes us forward to the therefore. If Christ has done this, therefore, movement from indicative to imperative. I pray it blesses significantly. Let me pray, and uh, then we'll read Matthew chapter 1. Let me get there. Matthew chapter 1. Just the verses up through the wise men. Blessed Father, how we love you, and thank you for the gift of thy breathed-out word. Precious to us is it. Glorious is the ability that you have through it to encounter your servants in their private Bible reading, in group or family Bible reading, but also through the preaching, through the scripture. Lord Jesus, we pray that this day you will come and you will proclaim the Father's name and glory. We honor you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, take your Bibles and stand with me. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 2, 1 through 11. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together the chief priests and scribes, he began to inquire of them where the Messiah, the Christ, was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having seen, heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, the word of God. You may be seated. First, I would observe that while we will not touch upon it, it seems fitting in this text and this chapter, particularly Herod's response to the fact that the wise men, Magi, never came back, that he sends and slaughters the boys two years old and down in Bethlehem and its environs. What took place there historically is graphically, metaphorically, theologically laid before us like a vast paintbrush in Revelation chapter 12. Herod may think he's on top of his game. He is a glove with the hand of Satan inside that glove, moving this godless king to perform hideous, hideous deeds. Historians tell us Herod died three, four years later. Herod has been in flames since that day, even to the present. Learn to think in light of eternity. He didn't just die. He has now tasting the overture, if you will, to his just reward. But here we are in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses, which are glorious and marvelous for us, because the Spirit breathing out through Matthew here gives us this tale of the three magi, or wise men, that we're told about. Now, it's not known who they were. We are only told that they came from the east, whether they were Chaldeans or Arabs or, uh, in today's modern-day words, Iraqis. This is the region from which they came. But one interesting possibility to understand who the Magi were is that the books of Moses and Daniel in Babylon may well have laid a seed 700 years earlier in the minds of the wise men of ancient Babylon. For you recall Daniel is taken into exile, and there he 
uh, properly, biblically, by God interprets a dream, thereby saving the neck of himself and all the Babylon's wise men. And he is thereafter appointed to be ruler or chief of the wise men. He's made department head. And I've often thought of it that way. What would a brand new God-fearing supervisor do with a room full of sorcerers? <laughs> well, he'd open the Bible, I'm sure. And one of the places that Daniel very likely, and if you think of it from their vantage point, this guy just saved their neck. Where do you get your wisdom? I don't have it. It comes from the most high king of heaven. How can we learn about him? Here's the Pentateuch. Here's the five books of Moses. He would have had that. So turn with me to in Numbers chapter 24. And we find here a, a fascinating event, a fascinating tale. And I don't recall the verse, but it's like the fifth or sixth or seventh verse. But it's the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, who is hired to pronounce a curse on the Israelites journeying through this land. And Balaam pronounces not a curse, but a blessing, because God takes over his mouth, just like God took over the donkey's mouth that Balaam was riding. And Balaam prophesied this, you find it there, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. And Balaam finishes his prophetic discourse and says to himself, I said that. Wow. God takes the prophet's mind, grabs the prophet's mouth, puts words in. Balaam is caused to see a picture, presumably, of the Messiah, but not yet coming, but not here yet. And then these words, scripted in by the Spirit of God's breath through the hand of Moses, a star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. Now, there is no explicit causal connection between Numbers 24 and Matthew chapter 2, but it is very interesting circumstantial evidence that these men, these magi, from which we get our word magic, these magi are prompted in a search. 
into deeper things than what they could have possibly fully understood. Listen to Calvin. The Heavenly Father chose to appoint the star and the Magi as our guides to lead directly to his Son, while stripping the Son of all earthly splendor for the purpose of informing us that his kingdom is spiritual. This, this history contains profitable instruction, not only because God brought the Magi to his son, listen carefully, as the first fruits of the Gentiles, but also because he appointed the kingdom of his son to receive their commendation and appointed the star for the confirmation of our faith. Hmm. End quote. You recall Matthew chapter 1, the book, first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Son of David, the genealogy establishes that. Son of Abraham, what was coming through Abraham? that through you all families of the earth shall be blessed. This isn't just for the Jews. And so who does God bring on the scene? After the shepherds, wise men from the east. Application. There may be true servants of God in places where we would not expect to find them. The Lord Jesus has many hidden ones like these wise men. And their history on earth may be as little known to us as that of Melchizedek. We meet Melchizedek, Genesis 14. He appears. He just appears. Hebrews says of him, without father, without mother, without beginning or end not implying that he's eternal, but God tells us nothing more than what he did to Abraham and that Abraham tithed. But we don't know. How did he hear? Or ancient Job. Where in the world did Job get? We, we don't know. But God has many whose names are in the book of life and they will be found with Christ in the day of his appearing. It is well to remember this. We must not look around. It's easy today to look around the earth, to look around our culture, to look around our state, and realize and feel that all is barren, all is forlorn, all is lost. But the grace of God, brothers and sisters, is not tied to places and families. The Holy Spirit can lead souls to Christ without the help of many of the outward means he has made available to us. Not without all, but they don't all have to have a church building or hymnals or a 
good translation, there are many who come to God through Scripture, through the Word of God, however he does it. There are many who come to God who are in dark places, and yet the Word of God comes quickening and enlivening them unto salvation. J.C. Ryle says it this way, Indeed, there are some traveling to heaven at this moment of whom the church and the world know nothing. I would say some are in the highland jungles of Burma, Myanmar. No, they've got a copy of a Bible that was deposited by a missionary whose name I know maybe years before, and the Spirit of God can breathe through that holy text. Some of the spiritual wastelands around the world of Iran or Afghanistan or Sudan, the church is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ is flourishing as men and women are being led to the Savior. They're encountering him in Scripture in whatever form it comes to them. But there is a church being called and quickened by Christ, which Matthew chapter 2 illustrates for us. Where did they come from? We can only speculate. But Christ loves them and they love Christ. Another application. It is not always those who have the most religious privileges who give Christ the most honor. We think about what Herod did. He calls together the scribes and the Pharisees and says, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they, they know they know right to where to turn him. And they should have been the first to mount their donkeys or just put on their sandals and get themselves to Bethlehem on the slightest rumors that the Savior was born. But it was not so. A few unknown strangers from a distant land were the first except for the shepherds. And even as the Apostle John tells us, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Tragic, tragic picture of human nature. And how often the same is seen among ourselves. How often those who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them the most. And so church attendance falls off. Bible reading falls off. Participation in Holy Communion falls off. How easy to let distractions of this world turn us away from the means of grace particularly found in the church, the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3. J.C. Ryle says, there is only too much truth in the old proverb. 
the nearer the church, the further from God. Say what? The nearer the church, the further from God. Familiarity with sacred things has a dreadful tendency to make men despise them. You say despise. I don't despise Holy Communion. I don't despise the preached word. Don't you understand that despise does not mean you hate it and you're throwing things at Despise means you just treat it lightly. It's not really that important. And so you despise it. Esau despised his blessing. He didn't rail against his father for the blessing. He didn't curse and shout. No, he just sold it. He despised it. Sold it for what? A distraction. Rao says, and there are many who from placement, placement, who you were born to and where you were born. And you think about that. In some ways, Noah and Lily illustrate this more beautifully than any. Born in China, godless atheist China, and the gospel comes to them there, and here they sit under the preached word of God. So riled again. There are many who from placement and convenience ought to be first in the worship of God and yet are always last. And there are many who might well be expected to be last who are always first. A third application of this Beautiful tale, true tale of the wise man. There may be knowledge of scripture in the head while there is no grace in the heart. Observe how King Herod makes inquiry of his scribes and elders of the people. Where will the Messiah be born? And observe how quick the answer was it's interesting. They knew immediately to turn to Micah chapter 5. Calvin, in his commentary, says in his day, the Jews were busy rewriting Micah chapter 5 because it is too damning to their theological conclusions. Observe what a quick answer they gave, though, to Herod and what a thorough knowledge of Scripture they show. And yet, they never went to Bethlehem. Too busy. Had other things planned. They would not believe in him when he ministered among them. Their heads were better than their hearts. J.C. Ryle says, Let us beware of resting satisfied with head knowledge. A man may have much of it and yet perish everlastingly. As important as sound doctrine is, and it is, if that's all you got, you're lost. 
Where is your heart? Where is your heart? What is the state of my heart? This is the great question. A little grace is better than many gifts because gifts alone don't save. Grace, though, leads on to glory. A fourth application. A splendid example of spiritual diligence in these magi, the the journey time, if they came from ancient Babylon, the journey time on the back of a don uh, camel. Now, our granddaughters rode camels just the other night. I didn't, and I can't imagine traversing desert on such a foul-smelling, for they stank at the latest nose, too. Foul-smelling beast. But these men went to great effort to come seek the new Messiah. It would be well for all professing Christians if they were more ready to follow the wise men's example. Do you? Do you follow hard after him? in the pages of scripture? When was the last time you opened this holy book and said, Jesus, speak to me, teach me from the words that I'm going to, that I am reading? When was that? What pains do we take about our eternal souls? What does our religion cost us? These are serious questions. And who, I say this carefully, who does my history suggest I am most like? The Magi? or the scribes and elders who knew all the stuff but didn't have a heart to seek hard after Jesus. These men provide a striking example of faith, and I quote from Ryle, they believed in Christ when they had never seen him, but that was not all. They believed in him when the scribes and Pharisees were unbelieving, but that again was not all. They believed in him when they saw him a wee child and worshipped him as a king. And this was the crowning point of their faith, for they saw no miracle to convince them. Aside from the star, they heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. And yet when they saw the child Jesus, they believed him to be the divine savior of the world, and they fell down and worshipped him. Ken, how old is Levi? Twenty? based upon the time that Herod apparently ascertained when the star appeared, Herod had everybody 24 months and down slaughtered. Okay, that's the horror. Now picture these three 
if there were three. Picture these wise men coming before a weak child like Levi and putting their face on the ground and worshiping the child. Could my heart, would my heart do this also? We read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. It is a faith that deserves to be placed side by side with that of the thief on the cross. The thief saw one die in the death of a malefactor and yet prayed, calling him Lord. The wise men saw a toddler at best, a wee babe, otherwise with his mother who was a poor woman, and yet worshipped him and confessed him to be Christ. And in the act of worship, you understand what they were saying? It's Thomas, my Lord and my God. This is the kind of faith, let us remember, that God delights to honor. And we see the proof of that this very day. Because wherever the Bible is read, the conduct of these wise men is known, a very well-known Christmas story, and told as a memorial of them. Let us not be ashamed to believe in Jesus and confess him, though this entire culture around us is careless and unbelieving. Calvin says, if the star had so powerful an effect on the Magi, woe to our insensibility, who now that Christ the King has been revealed to us are so slow and cold in our seeking after him. Adam Clark positively points out, in every age, from the foundation of the world, there has been some manifestation of the Messiah. He was the hope as he was the salvation of the world from the promise to Adam in paradise following the fall to his manifestation in the flesh. Now doctrine, because this passage quotes from Micah chapter 2, and I invite you to turn with me. And in your Bible, it's about this many pages to go back to Micah. Not many. Go back to Micah chapter 2, or chapter 5, rather. Verses 2 through 5a. And just have your eyes on it. Won't read the whole, but verse, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one shall go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth, it's plural. I'm not sure how the ESV does it there. But his goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity or from ancient days. 
Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd, feed his flock in the strength of Jehovah, Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of the Lord Jehovah, his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one, this one will be our peace. Micah chapter 5. In contrast to the clear oppression that Micah depicts coming upon the land of Israel and Judah, but particularly Judah, God is going to provide a ruler, a governor from Bethlehem. And here in chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet gloriously speaks of the eternal existence of Christ. In truth, the divinity of Christ is here proved to us. That is a virtual quote from Calvin. Listen to this. A quote. He said then that the going forth of Christ is from eternity for he will not go forth suddenly from Bethlehem as one who rises unexpectedly to bring help when things are hopeless. But the prophet declares that the goings, plural, forth of Christ would be different, that God had from the beginning determined to give his people an eternal king. Oh, blessed be God for Jesus Christ. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You say he wasn't on the cross. No, but in God's eyes, in God's mind, in God's will, in God's knowledge, the lamb, Jesus Christ, was slain before the foundation of the world. And so Paul will say in Romans 5, 14, deep theology. He'll speak of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Adam never was the ultimate purpose of God. It was the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who was the real, true, ultimate purpose of God, who Micah tells us whose goings forth were from ancient times, from eternity. Well, the King James translates verse 4. Verse 4, he will arise and shepherd his flock. The King James translates verse 4, he shall feed, feed. Thus bringing together the symbiotic in nature relationship between the concepts of shepherd and feed, shepherding and feeding. Calvin says, 
As to the word feed, it no doubt expresses what Christ is to his people, to the flock committed to him and to his care. Christ then rules not, listen carefully to Calvin, Christ then rules not as a dreaded tyrant who distresses his subjects with fear, but he is a shepherd who gently deals with his flock. Nothing, therefore, can exceed the kindness and gentleness of Christ toward the faithful as he performs the office of a shepherd. Still Calvin, he prefers to be adorned with this title rather than to be called and deemed a king or to assume authority to himself. He shall feed, he says, with regard to his flock. Christ will put on a character full of gentleness. For nothing, as I have said, Calvin, can imply more kindness than the word shepherd. But as we are on every side surrounded by enemies, the prophet adds, he shall feed shepherd in the power of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh. As much power as there is in God, even so the protection shall be in Christ whenever it is necessary to defend the church against her enemies. We have a king sufficiently powerful who has undertaken to defend us and to whose protection the Father has committed us. Now think biblically. The body they may kill, but God's truth abided still. His kingdom is forever to be protected by the shepherd, Jesus, does not mean I won't get sick. Does not mean I won't die. Does not mean I won't have loved ones who die. It means my eternity is fixed and certain as Jesus is certain. That ultimately is the protection he has promised. Calvin concludes then in this longer quote. Since then we have been delivered up to Christ's care and defense. There is no cause why we should doubt respecting our safety. He is indeed the shepherd and for our sake condescended and refused not so lowly a name as shepherd. For in a shepherd there is no pomp nor grandeur. But although Christ for our sake put on the character of a shepherd and disowns not the office, he is yet endued with infinite power. For he governs not the church after a human manner, but in the majesty of the name of his God. Application. 
Christ Jesus is our shepherd, our good shepherd, John 10. What demeanor, what disposition, what attitude of the face, of the voice, of the intonation of the voice do you suspect, do you sense was in Christ? as you read the Gospels. Kindness, yeah. Gentleness, yeah. The word kindness in the New Testament, literally, the lexical definition, having nothing to do of austerity or harshness, but mellow, as of wine, old wine, mellowed with age. That's Jesus's, that's New Testament's picture of what kindness looks like. Gentleness. He said, I am meek and lowly in heart. Meekness means strength under control without undue harshness. It means to display the right blend of force with gentleness. In fact, other than Bible writers of the New Testament days would use the word proutes, meekness, to speak of the bit and bridle in the mouth of a horse. Now what do you have there? Proutes, humility, meekness, incredible strength, but it's under control, under control. This is what we see in Jesus. Think with me. He looks up. He's just scratched in the dirt. Woman, where are thy accusers? There are none, Lord. Neither do I accuse thee. Go and sin no more. Or to the thief this day, you shall be with me in paradise. Wow. Or suffer or permit the little children to come unto me. Hmm. Or from the cross, woman, a dear form of endearment to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Or the charcoal fire motif. Peter, do you love me? Three times. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. And that gloriously tender passage which follows immediately upon a most 
severe, Matthew eleven twenty seven passage on divine sovereignty, Jesus immediately breaks out and says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is our sweet Lord Jesus, our Good Shepherd. And this is what shepherd pastors are to look like as well, like Jesus. And R-E-A-T-E should look as much like Jesus as he can. And it should be growing in Christ-likeness. We are to be molded after the great heart and disposition of Jesus, who is described as a ruler, but a ruler who feeds, who shepherds his flock with gentleness and tenderness, not with harshness or severity. And then that glorious phrase in Micah 5, 5a, and this one shall be our peace. Ephesians 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 passage we have been in several times these past few weeks. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. No end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. How did Christ establish his throne with justice? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our sins on Christ, his righteousness on us, the double imputation of Christ. Well, back to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Because we closed with the verse that speaks concerning the gift of the wise man. It 
In Matthew chapter 2, they came into the house. It was not a stable, it was a house. And they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and more. Gold is certainly a gift which speaks of royalty, and I think it is not without cause that this is woven into this gospel which seeks to establish the kingship of Christ Jesus. Frankincense from the Mosaic Code was one of the key ingredients in the composite making of the incense which was burned on the altar of incense before God in both tabernacle and temple. And these statements in the Mosaic Code are specific. You shall not use this incense as perfume. It is devoted unto God. And so the old hymn says, Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns, acknowledges a deity near nigh. Frankincense could well be pointing toward his deity. But more, John 19, when Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea take the body of Jesus, they take about 100 pounds weight, or 75 somewhere in between, weight of myrrh and other spices with which to bury the body of Christ. So if gold speaks of kingship and frankincense, hence strongly of deity, myrrh speaks of his manhood capable of dying, for God cannot die, but the man can die. Now turn with me in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, because it is fitting on this Communion Sunday that we recall, in light of the gift of myrrh, the Lord's Supper. We turn to this glorious feast, feast, a feast of remembrance, a feast of acknowledgement that death was died on my behalf. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, break it, and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did the wise men understand all this? I doubt it. Yet God has seen fit to show his grace to Gentiles in the Magi. 
who come and worship before a small child, Jesus, offering gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we come remembering his death. Brothers, would you come? Let me voice a prayer and then the men will distribute the bread to you. Father, we thank you and we desire to come with the innocence and joy of the Magi, recognizing that in this death is our life, in this broken body is our access into your presence, and in the shed blood is the forgiveness of our sins. Hear us as we come as a humble people, blessed by a humble, loving Savior. In Christ's name. Scripture tells us that when they were at the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread. He broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this, take this in remembrance of me. Blessed Lord, thank you for your broken body. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that through the, thy body, the veil, we may pass back to God. We remember, this is my body, Christ's name. 